Roland was a warrior on the land of the midnight sun, with a Thompson gun for hire, fighting to be done. Deal was made in Denmark on a dark and stormy day, so I set out for Biafra to join the bloody fray. Some 66 and 7, they fought the Congo War with their fingers on their triggers. Knee deep in gore, days and nights they battled the Bantu to their knees, killed to earn their living and to help out the Congolese. Rolling the headless Thompson gunner, Norway's favorite son. His comrades fought beside him, and Owen and the rest. But of all the Thompson gunners, Roland is the best. So the CIA decided they wanted Roland dead. That son of a bitch, Van Owen, blew off Roland's head. Roland, the headless Thompson gunner. Norway's favorite son. You can still see his headless body stalking through the night and the muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. Through the muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. Roland searched the continent for the man who'd done him in. He found him in Mombasa. In a bar room drinking gin. Roland named his Thompson gun. He didn't say a word. So he blew Van Owen's body. Very Johannesburg. Roland the headless Thompson gunner. Always my red son. You can still see his headless body stalking through the night. The muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. The eternal Thompson gunner sees wandering through the night. Now it's ten years later, but he still keeps up the fight. In Ireland, in Lebanon, in Palestine, and Berkeley. Patty Hurst. Heard the burst of Roland's Thompson gun and bought it. I'm back, folks. Uh, apologies for the extended delay. I uh, do not uh, expect to do as many uh, vlogs as I used to. Uh, I'm going to try to do one a week. That's what I'm going to shoot for right now. Uh but I, I do want to, you know, keep my toe into the pool to uh, keep, you know, things fresh, to keep the conversation churning, and also to get Chris his 100,000 YouTube subscribers. So if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, for the love of God, do it. The man deserves his big uh, pointy thing, his big right-click button that they're going to give him. The plaque, that's what it's called. Get Chris his plaque.
not on his teeth, on his mantle. But uh, also, I finally now have uh, a setup that works. Part of the reason that it's been so long since I've vlogged is that I spilled orange juice on my computer and had to get a new computer. And it's been a bit of a struggle figuring out without access to any kind of technological capability how to set it up successfully. So when I was in New York, Chris helped uh, set me up. And now I've got a, a system here. I've got a microphone. I have, for the first time, an actual webcam. I've got a dang webcam. Not just the one that comes with the computer, but an ex a, a separate bit of machinery. So everything now is ready to do point-and-click action. It'll be much easier to stream. So how's everybody doing? How's How many people have uh, Omicron? Y'all got that Omicron pack? That strong pack? I'm enjoying mine. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Might have it. I'm assuming at this point everyone has it, but that's all right. We'll be fine. I've decided to become, um, I've decided to become a uh, optimist. Having fun. Yeah, like there's going to be a U.S. military uh, utility vaccination that honestly more people might take because of the way people feel about the military. Like if they could just brand it as like the QAnon white hat vaccine that was created by the Patriots and not by the deep state, people would take it. It'd be very interesting to imagine what happens with Trump and his new uh, pushing for vaccines. Uh, it would take somebody with sack and swag in the Republicans to do anything with it, though, so I think he's still going to get the nomination. Getting that Omicron. Getting that Omicron. Getting that Omicron. Gonna get that Omicron. Very excited. Very excited to get the Omicron to spread it, as we all will, in this dark winter that we're headed towards. But aren't they all dark now? Right? That's why I've decided to be not just COVID optimistic, but just about everything optimistic. 90% of the universe is dark matter, which is just another word for we don't know what it is. Our own minds are effectively tuning into a global frequency and capable of literally creating reality through the projection of reality that makes up our lives. No reason to believe that anything that seems immutable is such. Things are a lot more porous than they appear. I mean, there's a new Matrix movie for crying out loud. I've been thinking about some stuff, but at the same time, I kind of want to just do a chill hangout to get back into it before I, like, really commit to some new heavy shit. Just doing a little bit of vibes right now. But I'm sure something will come up. I 
Hope everybody is having a wonderful Christmas time. This beard, somebody says the beard is Amish. Uh, I actually cut it. It was way more insane uh, when we were on when we were in uh, New York and I did the Buffalo show and the New York show. It was like I cut like a whole hunk off. Oh, I cannot play any instruments. Thank you for asking. I have no musical ability. Instinct ability, anything. Uh, and I, I kind of think it's related to my inability to grasp uh, math and numbers. My brain is uh, very uh, lopsided. It's pretty useless, really, in any traditional sense. Not a lot of uh, applicable skills. There's a great sandwich place in L.A. called, uh, I think it's called something like, It's Gotta Be the Bread, something embarrassing like that. But I gotta say, the bread, very good. So he's asking about the Amish. Uh, the Amish are very interesting because they were amongst those Europeans who really got what the what Reformation meant. Because the Reformation unseated a social structure, a religious social structure. That was the entire basis for the social order as it had emerged and sustained itself in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. And it's kind of amazing how cavalier a lot of the pro, uh, reformers were about that, about the implications of that. None more so than Martin Luther. Martin Luther honestly thought, oh, we'll just uh, allow our earthly magistrates to uh, to act as, you know, community leaders and as uh, the sort of localized focus of, uh, of a new civic order uh, around religion, uh, but one that had destroyed the connection between social acts and salvation that had been the entire bedrock of Catholic Europe. In pre-Reformation Europe, basically nobody was imagined to go to hell. 
Hell was reserved for like heathens, really, and heretics, and the truly like uh, uh, antisocial. The majority, the vast majority, it was understood of people would end up in heaven. That's what uh, that's what purgatory emerged to uh, to fill in the gap of to say, okay, everyone's going to heaven, but obviously. Everybody can't go to heaven because then where is the social, uh, you know, the social reinforcement for the behavior we want people to carry out? And that's where purgatory comes in. And then you have the, the Vatican acting as a bureaucracy, basically, an intercessional bureaucracy that is allied to the state. And Luther blew that whole thing up and made salvation a personal question. And I think, I don't think there's any arguing this. I think a big reason for the uh, the flippancy of a lot of the reformers was from the fact that they all genuinely believed that the world was going to end it, within their lifetimes, that they were in the end times. They believed that. And they believed that the things that they were going to do to create a more purified church were going to help bring about the end times. And then the end times didn't come, and, you know, we ended up having to reaffirm our uh, social structure on a new, literally godless foundation, which is nothing that any of the Protestant reformers would have wanted. But it's all we were left with, the market replacing God. And the Amish were among those small groups of, uh, of Europeans who saw the real implications of what Protestantism was going to mean and understood that uh, reforming the old early Christian communal social order was the only thing that was going to allow a, a faithful community to uh, persist. We're going to maintain that fusion of, of uh, acts with salvation by maintaining a closed community that does not rest on a basis of exploitation. That's the key part. Because class society generates uh, conflict and alienation, and that has to be processed socially. And that's what that Catholic bureaucracy was there to do in the pre-Reformation era. The only way that a, uh, a, a Protestant social order could be maintained is one in which exploitation is abolished. And that's what they did. Also, another group that tried to do that, but with a little bit more, uh, a little less, uh, a little more uh, frenzy uh, were the Anabaptists. And I think the real distinction between those two groups is, comes down to class. The, the, the Amish, the Mennonites, emerged out of groups of people who had buy-in from local lords, local landowners, who allowed them to basically play at society on their property. That's how all those uh, cloistered religious communities began, with the sufferance of some sympathizing noble who was willing to give them land, or if they were wealthy enough to buy their own land to work in common. The Anabaptists were those people who didn't have the money to do that. 
The Anabaptists are the ones who had no land and couldn't, pro- couldn't conceive of getting land. And fittingly, they all ended up coming to one city together, Munster, where they were able to overwhelm the local uh, government and take control. John of Leyden and his uh, followers. And they tried to create a, uh, a true, true Christian community where things were held in common, but they had no means of subsistence. They had no means of production. They were in a city. Uh, and pretty soon they were blockaded by uh, the emperor's forces, which meant that it ended up sliding into sort of a uh, frenzy of uh, execution of dissidents, uh, and uh, sexual licentiousness, a giant orgy to uh, go out to. And meanwhile, the vast majority of Europeans without knowing they were doing it, just marched into the oven of damnation, which is where we are now are all roasting comfortably, or not so comfortably. So anyway, as you might imagine, I'm pretty deep into the research for the 30 Years War uh, pod, and I got to say I'm very excited for it. I, I was very happy with how uh, Hell of Presidents turned out, but I know there are things that I would have done differently uh, now having done it. I, I, I mean, I'm sure that's true for Chris, too, although I honestly feel like he was much more uh, crucial to the success of that show and, and was more prepared for it than I was. So I can only imagine that uh, he's what he's bringing to the table for the second one. But I really feel like uh can really knock this one out of the park. I certainly hope so. Are people calling it cringe points? God damn it. How could we have let that there? How could we have allowed that to happen? Damn it. We left ourselves open. No, that's fine. You can o- You are only free in this world. I think everyone understands that now. Uh, if you have freed yourself of the fear of being cringe, because that is literally the uh, the chain around our necks as online citizens. I'm reading Simplicimus right now. That's one of the ones I'm reading is, uh, is Grimmelhausen's uh, book about the Thirty Years' War, which he was a, a soldier in. Anyway, I, I, I have, I'm, I've thrown my body under the grenade of cringe. I will be happy. Hell, the theme song, for God's sakes. We're coming out of the gate with a song that makes you want to kill yourself. Cringe is life. Cringe is living. Like, the idea of, being, uh, of, of avoiding cringe is the promise of the Internet, which is life without living which is being a mind, experiencing a world, but without the uh, consequences of lived existence, without the good or bad possibilities that inform our decisions. Just to, to be a translucent eye, uh, that is the, that's the dream of being based 
to, of being uh, uh, unconnected to the consequences of life. Cringe is a necessary component of uh, existence. The man who cringes with me is my brother. Yea, verily. Can I say, I, I put up a new, uh, a little while ago, I put up a new post, a new uh, piece of art here next to Giamatti, but you can't really see it with the, with the overhead, which is too bad because it's something I literally found on the street in Park Slope. Somebody had put out in front of their place for free a framed photograph of some guys in uh, ski masks, like loading a, uh, a uh, Armalite. Uh, with uh, on a table with a uh, Irish flag on it, and it says written next to it, it's like Derry, nineteen seventy two. Can't really see it though. How, by the way. So I haven't seen the new Star Super Spider-Man movie yet. I honestly thought I was free of Marvel, but a movie this big now, especially when you see it literally gollop, gobbling up all business and all these other movies that were released. By the way, Jesse Hawken on Twitter uh, is 100% right about this. All those movies from uh, name brand directors that came out the same weekend as Spider-Man and got eight are all... Released from by were all produced by subsidiaries of Disney. That was D Disney did that. Disney lined up all those guys to get annihilated, to get blown away by Spider Man because they're literally sick of humoring film fans. They want to end it. They want all that stuff to go to streaming, and they want to make sure that nothing is profitable theatrically that is not one of the big movies that they're interested in fucking spending money on. Because of the returns. All that stuff is chump change at this point. They would rather it just be part of their loss-leading streaming service. Still, sure, you guys can all do your little bullshit and you can make your shows, but you make them for streaming where we don't have to worry about distribution. We don't have to worry about, uh, about dealing with exhibitors. You guys can make your stuff for streaming. We leave the theaters for the stuff that we know can actually get a billion dollars back from. And that we can set ourselves up to have like a guaranteed revenue stream from the IP that is able to generate that kind of money. And I have to say, I will, I will confess this. And it is tough for me. There's a lot of great movies right, out right now. Movies that I really want to see. And yet, I find even my spirit leaving my body, my desire to make it a priority to go and see it, as opposed to wait for the fucker thing to be on TV. It's, it's bad. It's, it's not what I want things to be. I, I, gotta, I have to sort of intentionally push myself to try to see good things. I think Licorice Pizza will get me out soon, inshallah. And Macbeth, too. Especially since that one, see, Macbeth would be tough. Like, I ended up 
the first Coen Brothers movie since Fargo that I didn't see in a theater was Buster Scruggs because it was on fucking Netflix right there. I was away from a theater. I wasn't going to not see a new Coen Brothers movie. But that was on Netflix, which I have. This fucking Apple Plus bullshit, not going to happen, folks. Not going to happen. Not going to get... Drawing a line. For now, anyway, I'll probably violate it later. But drawing a line at fucking Apple, which means got to go to the theater to see Macbeth. The line must be drawn. Yeah. Scruggs was booty. Oh, that is such a bad take. Unless booty is good. I don't know. I think it's bad. Sounds bad. My context would make me think bad because like, but, but I don't know what the kids say these days. I think it's one of their best movies, honestly, because it's, it is, it's their, uh, it is a Coen brothers sample, sample case. It's like, this is what we can do. These are just little slivers of what we can do. And I do contend that the, uh, the romance subplot that they got in uh, the Galu Got Rattled section is really unlike anything else they've had in any of their movies, which to, to kind of put out this pastiche of, you know, your tropes, and then bring out a new register that you'd previously not hit in any of your work. I gotta say, impressive. Scruggs did not have Josh Gad. How fucking dare you? There was no Gad to be found. He provided no grunts or squeals. House of Gucci, Ridley Scott for me is not a theater guy. I'm not gonna see a shit in the theaters. I haven't seen Last Duel either. I will watch both of them though, for sure. I'm intrigued by both enough to see them, which is more than I can say for most Ridley movies. There was no gad. How dare you put infuriating. Gad provided the grunts and squeals for Muncher. I did see that in the theater, which is killing me. I'm seeing all this garbage in theaters because they kind of do have you. With Ghostbusters, it was more I dug my own grave. I had talked too much about, about Muncher to not have to see it. I, I, I had obligated myself. I would absolutely not go to the theater to see the new Matrix movie. I will be watching that at home without, without really a lot of uh, self-flagellation. I have to, though, before I watch it, I have to watch... Uh, Re Revolutions, the third Matrix movie, which I never watched because I was a guy who, of course, like everybody liked The Matrix. I didn't love it as much as some. I remember having an argument with a guy who said The Matrix is the best movie ever made. And I was like, slow down. Uh, and then, like everybody, I was excited for the sequel. And I remember being just so uninterested in answering the rest of the questions that I never even got around to watching Revolutions. Yes, I am the architect. That's the character I related to. Okay. Can, can we talk about Dune for a second here? 
I understand why people wanted to love that movie. I understand how they're deeply motivated to have something big and uh, spectacly that doesn't feel like the rest of that crap, that feels like there's nutrients. But I got to tell you, that movie, the, the Villeneuve Dune, resembled the Marvel Universe approach to filmmaking way more than a lot of people seem to be comfortable talking about. Because at the end of the day, this is IP that depends on pre-existing understanding of the material. And I know some people say, oh, I didn't know anything about the books. And I thought it was, I'm sorry, I refuse to believe that the way they refer offhandedly to all this shit does not clank off the ear of somebody who has no context for it. And then, of course, you have the fact that the most fundamental fact, the thing that undermines all those Marvel movies at the base, is that they don't tell a complete story. It's literally an ad for the next movies. The only thing that's insulting is that instead of doing the Lord of the Rings deal where they shoot the whole thing simultaneously and then chop it up, they shot one and then said, well, we'll see if they make enough. We'll see if you guys like it enough to make another one. And then everyone's like, oh, God, well, we'll go see it. Oh, we have to go see it. That's like, OK, we'll make another one. I'm a, kind of a truther on that. I honest, I deeply believe that when they shot the first this Dune movie, they shot a lot more fucking footage. They shot a lot more stuff from a completed second uh, script. And that when they get together to shoot the second one, it's going to be stuff that they needed to build out that they didn't already have built and ready because it would just be an insanely uneconomic move to tear down that whole production and then put it back up when you know you're going to make another one. And I am, I am largely uh, turned off by the muted color palette of the modern blockbuster that is used increasingly to symbolize seriousness in a way that is very uh, unimaginative to me. Oh, we can't make it too colorful. People won't know it's serious. So I thought it was fine, and there were some great visuals in there, and Villanueva is very good with scale, and he's able to give you the scale of Herbert's world in a way that I think is something that, I think that's what people mostly are responding to. But beyond that, uh, it just did not hold me as an individual thing. If I, 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 I kept finding how, you know, I was giving it more honestly than I needed to, than I should have because of my invested uh, connection to the, to the stuff, you know, to the, to the IP, to the IP really. And then there are some things that I think generally really do not work. Uh, I feel the entire conception of the Harkonnens to me smacks of just the anxiety of influence. Like the characters in the in the, the book are these outlandish villains. And Lynch, of course, makes them outlandish villains in his movie. But because Villeneuve has seen the Lynch movie and his movie is by necessity a response to the Lynch movie, well, he can't make the Harkonnens big, larger-than-life cartoons. They have to make them menacing. 
Oh, they're scary because they're quiet. These are supposed to be the bad guys in the story. You barely see them. They make no real impression. This undermines the dramatic tension. Why am I rooting for the Atreides over the Harkonnens? Because they're less sticky? I will say that the best single moment in the movie, and many have pointed this out, is the scene on uh, Salunda Secundus, or whatever it's called, with the Sardukar, with the throat-singing guy, with the mass sacrifice. That is a perfect bit of world-building. You don't have to set it up. You don't explain anything. You're like, yeah, this is a planet where they train child soldiers, basically, to turn them into uh, Urukai. They're making orcs, folks. On Salinda to Secundus, they're making orcs. And what would it mean to make an orc like that? You would need a, a, a religious, uh, ritualized existence to impose the values. So you, that's how you get the throat-singing guy. Great. Not enough of it. I will, of course, keep watching that garbage. But I have to say that it really did feel like a lot of people were wishing that movie to be more than it was. And to be diff more different than other blockbuster uh, fare than it was. Because they want something with some vitamins in it. I haven't seen the card counter yet. Like I haven't, there's a million great movies I haven't seen yet. And it's like, because I've just got a dick. I haven't seen Benedetta yet for God's sakes. Oh, maybe I, I think I'm hoping after the holiday, whatever's still in theaters and hasn't been eaten up by Spider-Man, I will make an effort to knock out some of these damn movies. So he says the Harkonnens aren't in it that much up to that point when the first movie ends. Well, once again, that's a problem narratively with ending it there. And also that means it's more imperative to beef them up. You don't have to give them more plot-wise to do, but you need to make them more indelible with the time that they have, the precious screen time they have. Uh, I did like Malignant a lot, uh, but really only for the turn. The first half was pretty boring. And then and, and, and that big turn really, it does a lot to redeem what came before. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're still watching a half of a movie that is just a knockoff of every one of, other one of these fucking Blumhouse films. Oh, man. Carpenter or Verhoeven. Ooh, shit. That's a really, that is a good comparison, those two. Because they operate in very similar registers, but with, like, different uh, uh, points of view. Like, I feel like uh, Verhoeven is... I think the difference is really Europe and the United States. I feel like Carpenter, honestly, is more optimistic than Verhoeven. I feel like they have a similar jaundiced eye, but at the end of the day, Carpenter is an American. Carpenter came from the country that won World War II. Verhoeven came from the country that the Nazis overrule, overran, uh, where they uh, deported all the Jews they could find, including the most single, most famous victim of the Holocaust there is, Anne Frank, uh, and put a V2 rocket platform in his backyard. 
And you're like, that's the difference between Carpenter and Verhoeven. But they're both great. Hard, oh man, gun to my head. Fuck. Mm. I gotta go for Hoven, I think, just because of what what Robocop, Robocop alone is one of the most like integral pieces of my like uh, cultural software. But it's a close one and it's a tough one. And I love that they both are Renaissance guys because obviously John Carpenter is a, is a brilliant musician. Musician, right? Like, you look at Halloween. Halloween is a great movie. One of the things that makes it great is its score, which almost in any other horror movie is done by somebody that the director, the producers brought in as part of the collaborative process of filmmaking. But with Halloween, that was Carpenter. So he's got he's a uh, he's a, he's a musical savant. And then you have the fact that Verhoeven, my favorite fact of all time, is a amateur scholar on the historical Jesus who has written on the subject and gone to like academic uh, seminars and, and, and been peer reviewed. Amazing. Give it up for folks. Your Verhoeven's your carpenters. I did see Halloween kills streamed it. And, uh, Man, they just forgot how to write movies at some point, didn't they? Like uh, they either. I wonder what how it works. Like the fact that you get sugar cubes, you get critical sugar cubes for just spoon feeding bullshit to audiences, has made it has incentivized people not writing. Like a thing where you'd say, okay, this is the idea we're trying to convey. How can we convey it artistically? That next step is no longer being made. You're just like, no, we got it. We're telling them it's about trauma. Good kills, though. Some very good kills. Like when the guy's eyes got popped out. But I mean, part of it is, is that it's clearly now, like anything, it's situating itself as the middle film in a trilogy, and those are the toughest ones to write. I'm very excited for the new Righteous Gemstones. Oh, my God. I just rewatched uh, Eastbound and Down, and my God, does that show hold up? Fuck, that show's so good. No, uh, I firmly believe Eastbound and Down is like the greatest co Protestant comedy ever made. Because the premise is basically, what if somebody could will the world around them the way that American Protestantism promises? And that's, and that's Kenny Powers. He is literally God's favorite son. He is, he is God's elect, and the world shows it to him by his pure, sheer will and belief in himself. Which is, of course, then belief in God and everything else. I know who Norman Bethune is, a communist, Canadian communist uh, surgeon who 
uh, was a field doctor with Mao during the Chinese Revolution and uh, did pioneering work with blood transfusions, I believe. This fun. I like playing quiz. Love it. I, 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 I love, yeah, more questions should just be, do you know who this guy is? Yes, he also served with the in the Spanish Civil War. And Donald Sutherland played him in a movie. Donald Sutherland, who is related to Tommy Douglas, the uh, founder of the uh, socialized medical system in Canada. Gregor McGregor, of course, the famous uh, fraud in Mountebank, who uh, fought for Bolivar and then tried to sell non-existent parts of Central America to rubes in uh, Europe. All right, someone's got me on one. Uh, Kimon Georgiev. I do not know who that is. You got me on that one. If you want to tell me, I would appreciate it. I don't have. To, I can't. Uh, I, I don't want to look on Wikipedia while I'm uh, streaming. I'm assuming he's a Russian. I'm pretty weak on Russia before the 19th century. I don't really. I, I, I don't know enough about the false Dimitris and such. Was it Marat? Is, is, is Marat the uh, only marshal who was allowed to informally address Napoleon? Lanai. Ah, damn it. People are, now, people are all asking about uh, Eastern Europeans now to own me. Of course, the Jacobite Rebellion. Bonnie Prince Charlie smashed on the fields of Culloden, which led to the traumatic Highland clearances. They were the ones trying to put the uh, the Catholic Stuarts back on the throne after the Glorious Revolution, which was the leveraged buyout, uh, or I guess uh, like corporate merger, I guess you'd call it, between Dutch and Anglo capitalism, and which gave us the modern world. That's the thesis, really, the culminating idea of the uh, Thirty Years' War pod we're going to do. Spoiler alert: is that it all all this whole the crisis of the 17th century, where uh, the Demographic overhang of the uh, medieval warm period that uh, occurred after the uh, Black Death uh, meets the Little Ice Age. And you see a, a general crisis across uh, the, the globe, really, as different uh, uh, societies try to uh, contend with this. And uh, in Europe, that meant the, the failing uh, feudal order uh, which is now being racked by not only uh, consistent agricultural shortages, but revolutionary changes in social technology, like the printing press and most and also military technology, uh, creates this new scramble for power. Uh, and the end, and the, in the end, out of this small and medium state competition, uh, the the best practices emerge. The best practices for dominating this contest, not the best practices for humanity, uh, uh, emerged in the low countries in England and uh, in different ways with different expressions, but they were all 
bundled together uh, as a force by uh, by the Glorious Revolution, which of course the Spanish ja- the uh, the Jacobites attempted to uh, overthrow to bring back the old religion and the old the rule by the old landlords as opposed to the new bourgeois. But it wasn't going to happen. Uh, they weren't going to turn back the clock. Although I do find it interesting uh, and amusing that there is a uh, there is still a Jacobite pretender to the English throne. Uh, they still have a a descendant who is the legitimate heir to the throne from the Stuart line, and it is Franz Wittelsbach of Bavaria, who is also the legitimate heir to the Wittelsbach uh, thousand year Wittelsbach dynasty that reigned in Bavaria before being overthrown in World War Two or World War One at the end of World War One. Somebody uh, talking about Africa. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah, they asked about, uh, the revolutionary uh, uh, first leader of Ghana, one of the key uh, uh, post-colonial figures there, uh, who was like a lot, most of those guys, uh, of course, overthrown eventually in a coup uh, with Western support. So that guy, that Franz Wittelsbach, is the uh, because the the Stuarts eventually fled to Europe, and they intermarried, of course, with all the European royalty, and so uh, the the Stuarts ended up marrying into the fellow Catholic Wittelsbachs. So that guy, uh, Franz Bavar- Franz, is the legitimate heir to Bavaria throne, England, Scotland, Ireland, if you want to uh, insist. Uh, and if you believe that the United States uh, is legitimately part of uh, the British Empire, uh, the UK, U.S. So let's let's do it. Let's put him in charge of all of those and see what happens. Let's have some fun. Uh, someone says, who do I think Lenin wanted to succeed him? I think part of the thing that made Lenin's last year so miserable and nightmarish as he saw his entire project collapse around him. And that, I don't mean that he uh, he had con- he was condemning the Soviet experiment. I just mean that he thought he was part of a revolutionary moment that was going to overthrow capitalism worldwide. And that was going to resolve the contradictions of ruling that he had inherited by overthrowing the provisional government. And for a while there, they actually thought that. Uh, like in the late 18, 1918, when you see the Kiel revolt in Germany, uh, Lenin was like giddy, because he's like, this is happening. And for a while, it looked like it might. But then once once they lose the Polish war, uh, it's really over. And, uh, and he had to face the reality of that. And he saw the, the factions and the groups and the people around him, and they were all inferior to him. And they... They were not going to be able to do what he could do because none of them were as good as he was, as 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 a complete a revolutionary and as as a visionary a mind and a will as him. They all had huge uh, problems. They all had huge uh, intellectual and character uh, deficiencies relative to him. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that he didn't want Stalin. He literally wrote a letter saying, hey, uh, watch out for Stalin. He's being an asshole to my wife. Uh, I, I, but I don't think he thought Trotsky had it. 
I absolutely don't think he did. Uh, I know some people say it's a forgery, whatever. I don't, I don't, I think, I think it happened. Uh, the, the Bukharin was the one who understood the moment the best, in my opinion, but Bukharin was no Lenin, you know, none of these guys were. And that's why the only one who won was the guy whose skills had, uh, were to be found elsewhere, to be found in the ability to wield power, because by that point, wielding power was the only thing that really mattered, because all of that precious uh, theoretical stuff was out the window. They were now in a uh, fight for survival. Uh, and the, I think the center of gravity of the party was not willing to do what Bukharin wanted, which was recognize that the revolutionary moment had passed, and accommodate the demands of the peasantry, which were the creation of a, a, a capitalist uh, agricultural model. Because that's what an uprooted peasantry, that's their interests. That's what they want. Because Russia was this backwater, that they had not been proletarianized. They were still connected to the land. Uh, and Bukharin was the only one was willing to recognize that moment, but he couldn't uh, get, I don't think there was any way he was going to get full support, especially when you had guys like Trotsky who wanted all the things, they were, they're the lady who goes to the grocery store or the man who goes to the grocery store uh, and says, as the bagger is collecting all their purchases, I want everything in one bag, but I don't want the bag to be heavy. Trotsky wanted, yes, of course, we need to uh, break up the peasant economy and communize it. But we certainly don't want to have to kill a bunch of peasants to do it. Okay, all right, congrats, okay. You, and that is why his fantasy was delay the question until an uh, intercession of some world revolution that for a while you could believe in. And they carried out the, the Bolshevik revolution believing in it. But by the mid-20s, it was no longer happening. World revolution was not walking through that door. And Trotsky could not accept it, because to accept it is to insist on doing something that is in some way a violation of your principles. You either go forward with collectivization and violate your principles of human rights and all that shit that you really do believe in, or you make a deal with the peasants you step away from communism. You, you, you create, you institute a market economy from the top and you destroy your principles, your belief that you are in the vanguard of a world revolution and the, all the underlying assumptions that go into believing that. And he couldn't, he could not choose. So he basically chose his own exile. And I, that's why, to me, Bukharin is the most interesting of those guys, because he represented the most realistic strain of thinking, the one that recognized, okay, even if we can do this, what are we creating by doing it? And people say, oh, they beat the Nazis. Yes. But what else? How? What after? Did they solve the, did they, what they did, ended up doing is taking the idea of communism, the idea of a society that is not bound by class conflict and is not 
uh, riven with the social dysfunctions caused by those contradictions. And they took it from an idea that could be pursued to a concrete reality in a place that is essentially the least hospitable for such a revolution you could imagine. Because there is no advanced capitalist capacity being had been built up as it had been in Western Europe. People were still wedded to the land in a peasant economy. And a peasant doesn't want to work more than they need to because being a peasant sucks. It is tedious, unpleasant physical labor. You want to do as little of it as possible. So you will aim for subsistence. Then you aim for subsistence until the political order changes and you are forced into the market. And, and, and especially as you are exposed to uh, potential labor-saving goods and household consumer items that you might want to buy. And that will motivate you to work harder. But it will never motivate you to make grain for somebody in a city so that they can work a factory that you don't get a cut of. That is why one of the well, that is why the fundamental function of capitalism is that it breaks that subsistence relationship between people and land, which of course is a horrible violation of the natural order in many ways, and is a thing that we lost everything by doing. We lost our ability to relate our human project to a humans to a uh, natural like uh, feedback loop. We, we are no longer constrained by the signals sent by every element of the biosphere we're part of because we now live in a fantasy pseudo realm of the market where we are, where, where the decision makers, where the structures of power are completely uh, protected from actual feedback from this, from the biological structure that we're part of. But it was also necessary to create the modern world and the modern social consciousness that could ever lay rational claim to the machineries of economy and distribute things rationally throughout a human biological system that is part of a global biological system. And yes, it was started long before capitalism. Capitalism is the final culminative action that resolves the contradictions of social orders that pre-existed before capitalism. It creates an entirely new set of contra uh, contradictions, but it solves the old ones. Like, for example, the Netherlands and England were the first countries in Europe to solve the issue of famine in their social orders, the, the periodic emergence of famine conditions, whereby people can't get food for any money, any money, money in the world, where they cannot eat, where the money, to, where the food does not exist to feed them. That was a cycle throughout all, and all, and it is a cycle in all agricultural societies, because again, the peasant works as much as he needs to. That means he's working for subsistence and he is not building a lot of reserve. 
Also, the technology doesn't exist to maintain and hoard reserves or to do anything productive with them. Most, in, in a, in a uh, low level of technological development, most uh, agricultural surplus goes to waste. And what that means, though, is that if conditions change drastically, as they did at the Little Ice Age in the 17th century, all of a sudden, you don't have any reserves, you can't feed people, and they fucking starve. Capitalism, a, 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 a free market in, uh, in land tenure in England created a mechanism that compelled everyone who produced agricultural goods to do it as efficiently as possible to create the largest amount of surplus. Because if they didn't, they were going to get thrown out on their ass. And that is a social technology that gets people to treat their relationship to the land not as one of nourishing the body from the efforts of the, of the body, but of creating a rational uh, factory process that results in agricultural surplus. And by doing that, they solved that problem. They solved the contradiction. Now, they created an entire new exploding set of contradictions that, if unresolved, will destroy life on Earth, or at least be, be the radical Malthusian check on our out-of-control system that, uh, say, the Black Death and, and the, the crisis of the 17th century did to feudalism and, and, and uh, early modern hybrid uh, economy. Now somebody says, what about uh, ancient uh, empires? An empire is an entirely different story. The thing that differentiated Europe for the rest of the world at this point is that an empire could not dominate it. It was dominated by small and middle-sized political units, whereas the vast majority of the rest of the, of the uh, globe uh, was dominated by uh, imperial structures that reduced internal competition. And it's that pressure, that internal contradictory pressure, that generates the innovations of capitalism. And the thing that has allowed capitalism to develop this far and to blow past Marx's predicted moments of full crisis is uh, because of fossil fuels uh, and the ability to use fossil fuel technology to reduce labor, to reduce the amount of real, physically unpleasant work that has to get done, at least close to uh, metropole, close to and uh, in proximity to like, meaningful structures of governance and control. Somebody asked, what about peasant socialism? What about the SR's peasant socialism? Peasant socialism will not produce an industrial economy and, and, and therefore will not create a political economic unit 
that can compete with the other ones that are looking at your territory like it's a sexy T-bone steak on a desert island. Because peasant communism, as the SRs imagined it, is also going to be not unincentivized to produce massive surpluses for consumption in industrial uh, cities. It would incentivize that sort of Amish-like communal uh, uh, agricultural economy. That's not going to give you a modern state. And at that point, modern states are not optional. And this is one of the key things about capitalism is that it's not just compelling the peasants, right? It's not just compelling the tenants. It's also compelling the landlords. It's compelling everybody to do things that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. The royal houses, the, the, the traditional dynastic rulers of Europe did not want capitalism. They all resisted it in one way or another to the extent that they could. Some of them got their fucking heads cut off. Some of them made accommodations. And what happened with a lot of them is somebody got their head cut off and then the guy who came in afterwards understood what the score was, which is essentially what you see in your England during this turbulent 17th century. One guy, Charles I, tries to assert in the face of this rising power that is empowering people who are not part of the traditional uh, uh, elite uh, influence, uh, and he says, no, then we don't have a monarchy. And so they're like, all right, fine, well, I guess we'll see who's more powerful. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's us. It's the merchants. It's the city dwellers. We're, we're better than you fucking fancy Fauntleroy asses with your big flu plumed hats and your peasant levies. So that means we cut your head off. Now, turns out, those precocious English with the wild accelerant of Calvinism, which took all of the crises that were genuinely being created out of the conditions and made them vastly more uh, high stakes and vastly accelerated the timetable of conflict, uh, cannot stabilize into a democratic system without a overarching Hobbesian figure. And so you have Cromwell sort of standing in the breach as this king who isn't a king, this uncrowned king. But of course, that means it doesn't have the, uh, the legitimacy of a monarch and tumble down dick. By the way, if anyone wonders why uh, Logan Roy calls Ro Roman tumble down, he's referencing tumble down Dick Cromwell, uh, Oliver Cromwell's son, who was supposed to follow in his footsteps, but who immediately lost all buy-in from the elites, was essentially paid to fuck off. And he did. Monk goes behind his back, negotiates to get the Stuarts in, and they say, here's some money, fuck off. And he said, good, because I did not want to do this. This is too much pressure. And the thing is, that's what happens with royalty. They, the, there is degradation generationally because they didn't fight for it. Oliver Cromwell came up from fucking the minor gentry to, to kill a king. That is a meritocratic machine producing someone capable of doing that. His son was his, just his kid. Did nothing. Didn't have it. And that's true of all these guys. It's the institutions themselves that keep it going. 
And that institution was too raw. So they brought back in the Stuarts. But then, you know, Charles II, he's really happy to just fuck, basically. But then James, you know, after that whole experience, you can see why the Stuarts are more sympathetic to Catholicism since it wasn't Catholics who cut their dad's granddad's head off. And so James II first is Catholic. But by that point, the Protestant, the new Protestant landed and merchant elite uh, aren't having it. And they literally do a job interview with the with the, the Stadtholder of uh, Holland, and he just comes on over. And of course, the the misery and the pain of working to make this world didn't go and didn't go away. It was a lot of it is now being felt by the by the planet, and that we don't have to feel this people. But a shit ton of it is still being felt by people. But those people are no longer the people within those social structures that built capitalism in its infancy. It has been. Offloaded. Capitalism came in turn to every social order, came knocking on the door. The local elites fought it and then eventually capitulated to it. The elites are bought off. Everyone else has to, to, to accept the new terms. And the terms get worse the farther you get from the establishment of capitalism. And the less the conditions of the place the capitalism shows up uh, have, have adapted to uh, the... Uh, have adapted to the capitalist understanding of property relations. If you don't have a fully developed capitalist property relation, then you are JWF, you're jolly well fucked. And that means that you get capitalism and you have a social peace that is dominated by those within the system who benefit from it, the compradors, and everybody else gets essentially the continuation of uh, the most savage imperial uh, forced labor, but uh, in a condition where everybody is being uh, invisibly motivated and compelled by the market. Uh, and, and while the, there's still social compulsion from the state, that's not what's doing the majority of the work. It's an ordinance of private compulsion that goes from the private compulsion of the weird little Calvinist in your head, if you're a member of the uh, American uh, liberal elite, or a gun in your face, if you're a coal, a coal tan miner or a, or a shrimp slave on a, uh, on a barge in the South China Sea, or in the middle, if, you've, if it's a big old pile of debt on your shoulders. Everywhere along the line, there is some force compelling you. And the abstractness of it intensifies the higher up you get. And it's much more concrete at the base. But we won't. Ex but life isn't experienced throughout all these sections. That, that gun at the head is so far, culturally, linguistically, geographically, from the centers of these systems, that the real horror and the pain is literally uh, imperceptible. 
It can only be imagined uh, entirely fantastically. It can only be imagined in the mind. And you, you get to choose how much you uh, imagine it. And a lot of other stuff is happening in your life that's a lot more concrete and real. And it's pretty easy to tune that stuff out. Okay, I've gone over an hour. Good talk. Feel like we covered some good stuff. Had fun with the quiz, by the way. You guys like doing that. By uh, all means, just ask people who people are. Because uh, I do learn. I see some names there. I don't know. I'm going to have to look up this Timo Grigoyev guy. Nobody told me who he was. All right. Talk later. Bye-bye.